0: Did you know that you can experience many of the wines I taste here on the Wine and My podcast? I'm sure you're aware of how important it is to me to highlight wine brands that are owned by those in the Latinx community. That is why the last Wednesday of each month, we host a virtual wine tasting featuring latinx owned wine brands. Whether you choose to partake in the tasting or just want to learn something about these vintners, if you enjoy wine, you will love these virtual events. Please visit the wine and podcast.com slash events for more information. Let's support our community and support these small vintners. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez and this is the Wine and Chismet Podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So, welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Cheese May Wednesday. Maria, Brito, thank you so much for being on the Wine and Cheese My podcast with me today. How are you?
1: I am so happy to be here with you, Jessica, and I'm thrilled to hang out and have a little bit of wine today because I actually need it.
0: Wait, you're in New York, right? How is everything going? Because it's like crazy weather right now.
1: It was crazy, but not in Manhattan for some reason. Some people who live downtown and close to the water may have seen a little bit more of a flooding, but not here because I live in Chelsea and it's kind of in the middle, not on the edges. I don't live on the edges of the island. So I live more in the middle of the island and I don't have any water or flooding here. So today's beautiful, actually, is super nice weather. This whole thing happened yesterday. So it's fine. We're fine. Good.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to have you on. I'm so excited for you to share your story with us. But before we get into the achievement of your story, we start with the wine, girl. What are you drinking today? Because I know you're drinking wine with me today.
1: I drink bubbles, girl, because I... Actually, my husband introduced me to wine because he is a wine collector. I could not tolerate red wine because for me, it was too strong and he gave me a hangover. And so I also did not like white wine, but I found champagne to be a marriage of the heart. And people say I'm a snob, but guess what? I pay for that shit myself. You know what I mean? Like nobody pays for the champagne. It's not my husband. It's me. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. I'm a huge fan of small champagne producers. Also, you know, sparkling wine from France. I don't think people in Prosecco is not even come close. I think actually Cava is a much better sparkling, in my opinion. I am a fan of anything and everything that is extra brute.
0: Yes. Ooh, yes. Extra brute, for sure. If people don't know, Prosecco is the Italian sparkling wine and Cava is the Spanish sparkling wine.
1: That's your job, you know, to educate them in the fine pleasures of uh, wine.
0: Yes. I think it's just a lot of people don't realize like the difference, right? Between Prosecco, Cava, Champagne, sparkling wine. A lot of it is made the same way, but it's made from, you know, different grapes and different things in different areas. I do have a really good small producer of a beautiful cuvee sparkling uh, wine. They're called Las Amigas. And they are out of the Napa area. And in California? Two, yeah, they're owned by two yes. So good. It's become one of my favorites.
1: Music to my ears. I'm going to check them out. Yes,
0: I will send you the link for sure. Today, I'm drinking a 2014 Jose Wine Caves Zinfandel. Jose Wine Caves is a really small producer in Northern California, and they are so good. So, there's tasting notes for this, and I've tasted this one, but it's delicious. It says the 2014 Zinfandel is fun in a glass. I can confirm this. Light in body and (laughs) a punch of cherry and pepper up front, followed by a more berry flavor. You'll wonder if it's Zinfandel at all. It's really, really good. So, salud. There's my sound effect.
1: (laughs) I think we got it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, if I sound a little bit different, everybody, I'm actually recording from my parents' house, which I normally do not do. There's very few areas that I could actually be in. So I'm in their bedroom, at a desk in their bedroom, but the bedroom's so huge that there's a lot of echo. So I apologize for that. <laughs> but I'm not going to apologize for having Maria Brito. So let me give you some of her bio because I, this woman has done a ton of things. She is an award winning New York based contemporary art advisor, author, and curator. A Harvard graduate originally from Venezuela. Her monograph, Out There, published by Pointed Leaf Press in 2013, was the recipient of the Best Book Awards in both the art and design categories. In 2015, Brito was selected by Complex Magazine as one of the 20 power players in the art world, and in 2020 was named by Art News as one of the visionaries who gets to shape the art world. She has written for publications such as Huffington Post, Elle, Forbes, Artnet, Culture Magazine, Entrepreneur, Departures, and the Gulf Coast Journal of Literature and Fine Arts from the University of Houston in Texas. For several years, Maria has taught her creativity course in companies, and in 2019, she launched Jumpstart, an online program on creativity for entrepreneurs based on years of research and observation in both the areas of business and art. You guys, that's just part of her bio because this woman has... (laughs) Like five oh, you know, lives. <laughs> it's seriously, it's like wow. When I was reading your bio and and going over like your website and everything, I was just like wow. I was so blown away, and I truly appreciate you sharing your time Aww. with me and with the audience to be able to share your journey. So, you ready for the chisme? I'm ready for the chisme. <laughs> so you are from originally from Venezuela. When did you move to the United States, and what was was it because of all of the things that were going on, all of the civil unrest in the area, or was it for different reasons?
1: No, I actually was able to escape before. I moved to the U.S. to attend Harvard Law School because I went to law school and I transformed my life years after. So here's the deal. Here's the story so my fellow Latinos understand where I come from. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela. My father comes from very humble origins and he was an entrepreneur as well. And my mother had a little bit more of a blue blood background, but get this, her father, who my adored and beloved grandfather who passed away 16 years ago, was a, an executive of in, a, in a bank that his family that had immigrated from Lebanon to Venezuela looking for better opportunities had founded this bank. And my, my grandfather was an executive and he got kidnapped by the guerrilla, by men who had been trained by Fidel Castro. And he had, this was in the early 70s. And all the money he had went to pay for the ransom. So my mother's family went from having a lot of money and a very comfortable life to having nothing. Because you know it was the life of my grandfather. You know what was at stake. There is a lot of intergenerational trauma in my family, absolutely, of, uh, with money and crazy issues like that. And I think part of my mission is to avenge that. When I was growing up in Venezuela, I felt I was very Latina in the sense of like how I look, how I dress. My values, my convictions, family, friends, you know, keeping my people close, generosity. But I did not feel comfortable with the corruption, the lack of meritocracy and how people, you know, um, Venezuela has a lot of plagues. The dramas come from both sides. The rich, the poor, everybody was very corrupt, honestly. And so I felt there was no chance for me to succeed because even though my parents who had given me a very comfortable upbringing in, a, a, I would say middle class, not upper middle class, but middle class situation where I was an only child. So I had a lot of advantages in the sense that the money was like to cover for my education and a Catholic school. You know, I mean, it's a very cookie cutter type of story, my Latin upbringing. Right. And so I felt there was nothing I could do to make a difference because the surroundings were so rotten, right? Everything was like bad. And I was right because I left right at the same time that Chavez was elected. And I knew that the country was never going to come back from that because the resentment was so huge. And also what I'm telling you, every side is corrupt and rotten. So I, I wanted to do better and I was a very good student and, uh, I spoke languages because I really tried hard and I, you know, this Catholic school with my parents enrolled me had English and French and whatnot. So I spoke languages and I, and I, and I was accepted and to Harvard Law School. So I moved to Harvard in year 2000 I graduated and I moved to New York City because that's the thing to do. You have to go to a big law firm. And you have to make a lot of money and be successful. And that was part of like what my parents wanted me to do. However, I did not want to be a lawyer. I want to be a singer. I wanted to perform. That was my thing. But in my mind, you know, that was like the path to success. And my, ma- my mom was like, eso es de putas. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was for whores. That was my mother. <laughs> you know what? That was what my mother had a very strong opinion about artistic careers. And so... I moved to New York in 2000 and I work my way through corporate law firms and trying to pretend that I love them and things like that. And, you know, they look glamorous from the outside, but they are not glamorous. Those jobs are horrible. And and I was pretty much a slave in a way, right? I mean, a very, very highly qualified and highly paid slave of this lifestyle of working weekends and working nights and things like that. And it's it was like, okay, I still work weekends because it's my business. But it, this was another thing that I don't even know how to explain the level of anxiety that it generated on me, like to be always at the mercy of this phone call from the partner or from the client and things like that. So I actually tolerated that for nine years because... I didn't know any better. I had a lot of shame after like, oh, well, if I quit this job, look at the effort I put. My parents, you know, my father paid for this. He actually accumulated all this money just to pay for my education, right? Because the man, like literally all the money he had was to pay for my education. The shame that I felt was nothing in comparison with the pain that I felt of like staying in that horrific job that was not for me at all, right? Right. And so I had already gotten married and I had a baby and when my son was born and I had to go back to that law firm and I was on maternity leave and I, and I returned and I was like, this is no life. This is no good for me, you know, and I was literally like my hands holding my head every day in my desk thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Because I, this is not something I I just can't spend my life in this law firm. Yeah. I was determined that I wanted to do something better for myself. And I did. And I quit that job that was very comfortable with all that money that were paying me. As I'm going to open a business in a field that I love doing something I love, even if I don't have any clients and nobody knows me, it's a crazy shit to do. I was 32 years old. If anybody's listening, I think that Thirty-two is not old. It's not young either. But no, anybody absolutely. can reframe and do a, a new life at any stage. You know. Oh,
0: completely agree. And before we get into like what you're doing now and what you pivoted to, there's a couple things that I want to kind of just go back to first. It actually is so crazy. A couple of things that you've said have connected to some recent episodes of the podcast. So last week, or actually a few by the time this comes out, a couple weeks ago, we had a podcast on what is happening in Cuba. And Mari, the girl I was talking to, she was saying how Venezuela had was an arm of the things that Fidel Castro was doing were, were affecting Venezuela and everything. And that directly affected your family. So it's like, it it kind of just confirmed all of the things that she was saying, like, oh my gosh. And somebody who had such a personal piece of that with your family, I'm sure, like you said, that had a lot of generational trauma i mean that itself had put so much trauma on the family and then not only the action but then the loss of the money and then how do you recoup and how do you how do you think that your parents or your mom in particular how do you think that affected her and in turn affected you growing up
1: let's just actually say that my grandmother who was the wife of my grandfather who was kidnapped I think she never returned to be the person she was, right? Because of what I understand, that level of of trauma is a is PTSD that you don't overcome and also remember this was prior to the new medications for example like exist or like trauma therapy and things like that. This was the 70s and 80s, right? I mean When this happened was the 70s and early 70s, because I was born in 76 and this happened way before. So for my mother, I know growing up with her, she was a very anxious person because It was almost always like expecting something bad was going to happen. My mom is still alive, thank God. But like she didn't have the tools, like the psychological tools or personal growth or development tools that exist today to get her out of the anxiety and that heavy feeling in your heart and in your body, you know, because anxiety is something that manifests in your body so strongly that something horrible is going to happen, right? So that kind of like haunt her. For life, and I think still does, still haunts her that something negative is going to happen. And on the on the financial aspect, I think that that obviously has terrible implications for my for my mother because it's almost like she was twenty or something when this happened, right? so I think that uh, you internalize this idea of almost like it's a bad thing to have money because somebody else is going to come and take it right away from you. And only now, as I myself has gone through a lot of my own therapy, my own personal development, I've researched a lot, this whole thing of trauma in the body, trauma in the head. And I am telling you, I feel that I am ca- the link who came to avenge all that because I am wealthy on my own, right? I mean, nobody gave it to me. I'm like, I have my money that I have worked for so freaking hard. And I have used all these tools to try to regulate my nervous system, to apply it, to love the abundance, to kind of like feel comfortable with the idea that, you know, I have money, that I am inherently valuable, that I have I'm safe, you know, that the more money I have, the more people I can help. And so I think that growing up was very very tough for me because it was very recent. Even children in the womb absorbed so much of the environment. And so this had just like happened, you know, three or four years prior or whatever me being inside of my mother and getting to come to the world where that was an episode that was relatively recent, even if it was years back, it informed a lot of my environment. And I knew of my father, of my grandfather's kidnap when I was old enough to understand it. You know, I probably was nine or 10 or I, I didn't need to know about that when I was a baby, but I learned about that when I was like maybe nine or 10. And it was, uh, It was jarring in a way, you know, to know that because my grandfather and I were very close and and he he was really literally the most special man ever. And so, you know, to think that that he was it it was like him being in the hands of someone, a group of people for a month. You know, that could have killed him. But at the same time, it turned him into my personal hero because imagine like, you know, he, he would not indulge or self-indulge in the story because it was a complicated story for him. But he, when he would tell, he actually would be so grateful that he was alive, right? That was the thing, like, these people fed me. And they kept me alive. They didn't kill me. And so it was this this whole kind of sense of gratitude and to, you know, also he survived. He actually invented many jobs for himself after, right? Like he never got the same level of wealth, but he didn't die destitute. You know what I mean? Like he was such an inspiration because, you know, my grandmother didn't work. I mean, this just wasn't thinkable. You know, women didn't work. And this guy was like... Well, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to get a loan and I'm going to open a printing company. I mean, he figured it out, you know. And, and again, he didn't really have a very wealthy life, but he had a happy life. And uh, of all the people in my family, honestly, in my immediate circle, he was the one who was the happiest.
0: I mean, when you go through something like that and come out alive, I'm sure it definitely puts this whole you know, we always say that we're we're blessed and that we're fortunate and that, you know, we should be grateful. But when you go through something as traumatic as that, I'm sure it just adds a whole layer and, and so much more to being grateful to be alive. So I think that's, I don't even know the word I want to use because I feel like the word I want to use is not coming to my mind, but that's just such an amazing story. And amazing is really not even the word that I want to use wine break time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese. let me hint that if you haven't heard i am here to share with you the wine and chisme podcast has launched the very first latine owned wine brand directory ever just go to the wine and chisme podcast.com then go to wine brand directory there you will be greeted by me But more importantly, you will be able to choose a winery first by region, then by county. And the wineries in that area will not only be listed, but you can connect directly to them from this site. It couldn't be easier than that, right? Use this directory to plan your own wine adventure or learn about some of these Latine vintners or share it with a friend and have them buy some Latine wine as well. something like this has ever been available... So go use it and support our community.
1: I wanted to tell you something that's going to blow your mind away. During the pandemic, last year, 2020, I think it was the end of April. We had, you know, the lockdowns happened in mid-March in New York. And, uh, you know, this was the most frightening time because we didn't know anything. And we were on the really, like, you know, lockdown, strict lockdown. Everything was shut down. People were not going anywhere. So, this this night and in, in the month of April, late April. And I'm thinking of my grandfather because as I told you, I grew up in Venezuela and lockdowns also were part of the of life, right? Because before Chavez, remember that Chavez also gave a an attempted coup d'etat to one of the presidents, and civil unrest was the norm when I was growing up. So you know, there were uh, war tanks passed by my house many times in front of where I lived. I saw people getting shot, and this was like at the time where Venezuela was good. Okay, oh my gosh, seriously. So I was in my in my comfortable, amazing house and apartment in New York City, laying down in my bed, but you know, feeling very, very low because as I'm an energetic, positive person, it's been a month and a half that we're in a lockdown. We don't know what's going on. I haven't had a lot of, you know, contact with friends and I'm, you know, nostalgic even of like Venezuela or things like that. So I Googled the name of my grandfather. I've never done such a thing because my grandfather, he's been dead for 16 years. And also this was not a guy who was on the internet or anything. And next thing you know, is I found a video of the day he was released from the kidnap and he was brought to his house. That really opened every, you know, gates of tears and, you know, the most dramatic Latino moment you could ever imagine. Because <laughs> first of all, like I don't have a video of my grandfather. I haven't seen him in 16 years. Right. And suddenly to find that video that was part of Reuters, it was a Reuters UK. The video didn't have audio because that was the time where audio and video were separate and you had to actually synchronize them separately. And so, but the video, the image was there. And so there is this video of him being released and brought to his house. And there were like 50 policemen and 50 members of the military. And they get into the house. My grandmother is there to greet him. Goosebumps, the whole thing, all over, I mean... You have no idea what that video did to me. I think about it and I want to cry, but I'm not.
0: I think that's that's lovely because you get to see something that release, because I'm sure that you've heard this story, but to see something that is so direct from it, from him, his release, I'm sure that tapped into emotions that you didn't realize you even had about it.
1: Yeah. It's been wild. But uh, yes, I wanted to share that tidbit of information with our Latino friends because we carry a lot of baggage with our citizenships and our backgrounds. Yeah, I'm proud, of very proud of where I come from, but I'm also very proud of what I've built in this country. And I am an American citizen and I love where I am. And I think it's important to acknowledge that as well, right? Like, my kids are American and Latinos as well. And sometimes they ask me, Mama, I'm filling out a form. Should I put Latino? I say, yes, you should put Latino. You should never look down on where you are or who you are. Even though we're always labeled as white because we look white. Latin Americans are of every sort of like, you know, skin color. But I think we have a certain way of looking and things like that. And and I think what you're doing is very important, Jessica, because we don't really have enough visibility as a group. We do not. Even though we have the highest purchasing power in the country, even though we are the fastest growing demographic that actually brings the money to retail and to commerce and things like that. We don't really have a lot of visibility as a community. I have had a lot of visibility and I want to say that I'm very grateful. I've been a million of press pieces. I'm extraordinarily lucky. But I want to say that as Latinos, Latinx, we don't have visibility, the one that we deserve.
0: Oftentimes, our narrative is put upon us instead of us taking control of it. We're not in a lot of places of decisions. So we need to take our narrative back. And that is one of the reasons that I started the podcast to begin with. And it's not only for the Latine community, it's really for people across communities of color, but I think it's very important that within our community that we do take, I think there's a lot of other communities, you know, people that come from communities of color that do a really good job of defining their narrative and sharing their stories. And I feel like we're just on the precipice of that. Like we're still, we've been here a long time. Well, this is, you know, many of us have, are generations back from Mexico and when this used to be Mexico and everything. And it's just being able to truly tell those stories and share those stories and have a platform. So thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. I am really interested because like I said, you've had like so many lives. <laughs> you went to Harvard, which... First of all, how was that transitioning from Venice? Because you went straight from Venezuela to Boston. Was that a really difficult transition? I would imagine it would be because it's cultural and you're at an Ivy League school where there's not a lot of Latino representation. How was that?
1: You know, it's so funny because the most shocking thing is really the the insane winter you get in the Northeast, which I'm still, by the way, living. It's like, oh, every year, like, oh, here the winter comes. And I have had endured like almost like 24 years of winters or whatever. But the winter is really like insane, right? The second thing is I was not prepared in any way, shape or, or matter for the amount of work that I had to do every day right like the amount of reading and and the papers that I I was like what the fuck these people didn't like they don't <laughs> know they I'm like a fraud like I don't belong here you know what I mean like I can't do this shit you know I mean they would give you all these papers and books and guides and things and it's like oh this is your assignment for tomorrow I'm like I barely speak English I mean I like no I was really good at my English but it was like I can do this, right? And so for a long time, I doubted myself that what was I doing there, you know?
0: Imposter syndrome, we all have it.
1: Total. And I just, I wrote in my newsletter last, like two weeks ago about about imposter syndrome, but it was really strong at that because I was so young and this was an era of no social media. So, which I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's it's almost like I, I went from my little bubble, hot, warm, and fabulous in my, you know, Venezuela mini skirts to like layers and layers of coats and like hiding in my dorm and whatnot. And it's funny you say the Latino thing because there were Latino societies and whatnot. And I don't know if you know the twin brothers uh, who are uh, democratic candidates and also in office, like Julián Castro, they graduated with me.
0: Oh, really? (laughs) Yes.
1: They both graduated with me. And uh, it's funny. We're not in touch. But I went to the reunion like 11 years ago, actually. I didn't go to the to the one that was five years ago. And the other one was in 2020. So, And I saw them and I was like, oh, my God, is this so funny that this guy's graduated with me. And now they are. One was with Obama in the cabinet and the other one's the mayor of, I don't know, Austin, whatever. I forgot, El Paso.
0: I don't think he's the mayor anymore. I think he's in the House of Representatives. Yeah.
1: But he was, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, these guys have a political career, but I was the immigrant. and I mean, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, were they born in Mexico and they immediately come to the U.S.? I don't remember. No, I I think they were born in
0: San Antonio. Their mom was
1: Mexican. Yeah. Yes, in San Antonio, and their, their mom actually had come here as an immigrant, so... There were some Latino people in Harvard and international students were very cool. And you always find this fun American wasps who <laughs> look at you like the most exotic thing. But should they want to learn from you, you know? Like, actually, fantastic people, honestly. I mean, I have no... Complaints about the amazing American and folks and fabulous friends that I met at Harvard who looked at me like I was an exotic animal who spoke with an accent. (laughs) But they actually did it in an endearing way. I have to say, I have to say, nobody ever was horrible to me or, you know, they looked at me in an endearing way. And curious you know I want to know what you know where you come from and what do you do and so I don't have any horrific stories of like people you know say because I also thought the whole thing I was so incredibly lucky and privileged right so I was like okay if they looked at me like I'm a an exotic peacock that's fine because at least I stand out right with my accent and my flowery clothes and whatever you know it was shocking, you're right, but it was also dreamy.
0: I like that whole sentence. It was shocking, but it was also dreamy. I think that's a really that's a really good thing. I love how you have gone from, because you've completely changed careers. You have gone from lawyer to being in the art world as a curator and, and you're writing about all of these things. I know you said um, before that you or into like singing kind of artistic stuff. But what made you go from law to like art of all things? And you had, first of all, and let me say you had zero experience in those types of things as a as a curator zero. or anything like that. So how do you make that type of pivot? Cause that is a really you're 32. You've spent all this time going into law school. You decide you're like, I'm so done with this because I cannot take it. I want to be a mom. I'm sure you're like, I want to be a mom. I want to be a wife and I want to be passionate about what I'm actually doing. And obviously law wasn't, wasn't doing it for you. How do you choose art and how do you make that
1: pivot? Cause that must've been scary. That was very scary, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> but just to go back to answer the question, when I was growing up in Caracas, my parents had this very interesting idea that, remember, I was an only child. So, you know, it's almost like, this is our project, right? And so for them, it was also like, what are the things that are important to us, right? And my my father in particular was very adamant to like, we have to be cultured. That was his thing. He was actually, I told you, he was born in a very, very, very humble uh, family. And he was really brilliant. And he climbed out of those origins and did it nice for himself. So he was like, how do we make ourselves cultured? It is by going to museums and going to galleries and becoming friends with artists and understanding their world so he wanted me to be a part of that right so since i was a very young child every weekend my father took me because again this was the venezuela of the 70s and 80s it's not the it's not the ruins of today it was a vibrant city it was actually a very important Center for Art and Culture in the whole of South America, to the extent that at that time, every big singer, for example, wanted to launch in Venezuela, like Menudo and Shakira and Ricky Martin, that it was very important for them to have concerts in Caracas and, you know, music and art and culture, it's all together, right? So every weekend we'd go to all these art shows and they would rotate and there was a million things to see. And my father was super passionate about it. And my mother with my grandfather, who was out of the kidnap and he had revealed his life, he painted on weekends and his easel and he had his canvases and he was trading artwork with people. So there was a lot of this idea that you could be a very cultured person But that was not a career. That was just your hobby or like, you know, the things that you would incorporate in your life to enrich your whole kind of like environment. But that wouldn't be a thing that you would take seriously as a career. My parents would never, I think my mother and my father still don't understand what I do. And that's kind of funny, you know, because they know I do so well, but it's fine. You know, they are super old school. And, and so I had that, let's say I had a practical training on this whole thing of the arts. And when I moved to New York, I started going to galleries myself because, you know, the city was, and continues to be super important is the most important center for contemporary art in the world. So I I would go out to all the museums and to all the galleries and get to know people and I bought a little thing here for myself and a little thing here for myself and this and that and I always found artists fascinating and I remember that the first apartment I rented in New York City was a walk-up and the owner of the building was an artist so I would go to her house and so it was all very kind of like connected, right? I started because I was in this kind of like going to galleries in my very little spare time as an attorney. I started to see the people who was doing the job that I do, which is an art advisor. and, you know, building art collections for people and curating those art collections in their homes, I started to see the people who did the job that I wanted to have not being necessarily that smart or like that equipped with marketing skills and things like that, right? So I was like, this is so interesting. You know, I really would like to have this job and I see if these people are making money. They're not that smart they don't have a lot of creativity because that's the thing, right? Like I I wanted to do so many things. I wanted to write. I wanted to have a blog. And this was, what, 2008, 2009. So this was pre-Instagram, pre-TikTok, pre pre the whole thing. Right. So I saw that there was a chance for me and I started buying books about contemporary art more. Like I knew about the artists, but like I started reading books about the mechanics, the background. Listen, believe it or not, I knew shit nothing and I still dropped the gun and I said, I'm going to do this. And I told my husband, and this was like insane because I had a baby and the baby was literally crying in his little crib. And I was, I told my husband, you know what? I'm quitting this shit of like being an attorney because I can't do this anymore. And, And this was a very hefty paycheck and lots of amazing benefits. And meanwhile, the baby's screaming, right? And I'm like, I'm quitting this job. And he was like, are you sure that your hormones are fine after, you know, <laughs> and he wasn't offensive or anything, but like, you know, he's like, you just gave birth, right? I mean, like, it's been like, whatever, eight months or nine months or, and I was like, I'm sure as hell that I am not going back to that law firm after I, you know, I'm going to quit. And I did. And all I had was a website and my presence. All, all I had was like, I hired a web designer. I hired a woman who helped me with messaging. So what was the initial message? The initial messaging was like demystifying the art world for everyone. You know, I wanted to make sure that I came in like the anti snob the person who would open up the doors of the art world for everybody to understand it. And so when all these other people I told you who were doing the thing that I wanted to do, they were not blogging. They were not writing for magazines or for, for websites or anything because they didn't see a value on that. Only two social media networks at the time were Facebook and Twitter, and they were not on there because they don't have anything to say because that would take time and that would take time for them to learn how to do it and so on and so forth, right? right. And so I think that the strength with which I came in that actually came from my years as a, as a lawyer was that I knew how to write. And that actually used the what I had learned. And, and it took a long time to find my real voice and all that, you know. But I think that the strength of that, because I knew how to write, I could blog. And because I, I was very good at taking pictures and this and that, right? And look, I think that part of the success or the initial success comes from being in a completely different field where I had no enemies. I knew nothing. I had no backstories. I had no baggage with anybody. You know what I mean? Mm. It was like, oh, if you, let's say if anybody was, it was any like a guy was a dick. I wouldn't know because I didn't know. So I would just go to that person, shake hands, hug him, kiss him and say, I'm Maria Brito. And like, and that person probably would have been either surprised or delighted, right? That I was such a friendly entity when that person was categorized as a dick or a woman who could have been a bitch and I still did the same. So started building all these extra relationships right, with people because I didn't have a label for them. And this is such a good teaching for life. The minute we start labeling human beings for one reason or another, whether it is political or race or religion or whatever, we just start losing this, our inner capability for connection. Yeah, And I want to just like think about that all the time and go back to that moment. Because now that I have been in this world for 13 years, now I know everything about everybody and it's not pretty.
0: <laughs> I mean, right, when you get into the how to make the sausage, it's definitely not pretty. You have been featured and I'm. this is just a few of the things, you guys, because if I went over everything that she was featured in, we'd be here for like an hour an extra hour. In the New York Times style section, the New York Times Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, W Magazine, L Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Time Magazine, New York Magazine, New York Observer, The Daily Beast, The Economist, Interview, Vogue Italia, Vogue Mexico, Vogue Latin America, Vogue Brazil, Vogue China. You've been in like a lot of the Vogues, a lot of the different L's, Marie Claire, Latina Magazine, like all of these different things. And I know you also host a mastermind in regards to being unlocking your creativity for your business. So like you obviously unlocked yes. your creativity to be able to be featured in all of these magazines. What was the key to that? Because that's like, <laughs> that's so, in, like I was, re- like I'm telling you, I'm reading your bio and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to take lessons from this woman because she is doing it. Like she's fully, and you're- like we're pretty much the same age and i feel like sometimes i feel that imposter syndrome that you were showing earlier like i feel like am i doing what i'm supposed to be doing for the first time doing the podcast i do feel like that but i definitely get those those pangs of imposter syndrome as well and feel like am i doing enough at the age that i am is is what i'm doing enough so how did you get over that and, and tap into this creativity to be featured in all of these different publications?
1: I think I should share a story with you to give you some background. I got a lot of notoriety at the beginning of the career because I this happened almost at the same time. And two people who I know and I'm friends with were watching what I was doing on social media. And I'm telling you, social media was not what it is today. I'm talking about One tweet a day and one Facebook post every two days, and a blog. And like it was very rustic and rudimentary. And my blog platform at the time was Blogger, it looked horrendous. So, a friend of mine, and and you're going to say, but you're connected. It's not because of privilege. And I want people who are listening to this, I already said where I came from. Okay. My parents couldn't even be guarantors. When I rented my first apartment in New York City, I had to actually double up the deposit because I had no guarantors. I had nothing. No, you know, like my parents have no connections. I come from Venezuela. Like I build this on my own, right? Yeah. When I quit the job, you know, as an attorney and I started building up this business, I started talking to everybody, literally going on the street like a crazy person. I had a few friends who were fashion designers and those friends introduced me. Fashion people are very well connected. So these fashion designers who actually were from South America connected me to other people and other people. And so those people told me, let's say it's a year in a year into the business, working very hard, having just like a handful of clients, you know, making a little money and this and that, because I knew as a corporate attorney also that it was going to take some time to actually see their return. Right. And so I had just very little money and this and that. So I had a friend who was watching what I was doing on social media and she called me and she said, I really like what you're doing, Maria, because for the first time in my life, I'm understanding the art world because of you, because of the way you're writing your blog and how accessible it is. And, you know, you use very easy words. It's not this snobbery and this and that. I think I want to connect you to Gwyneth Baltro. And I was Wait, like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> this was 2011. And my friend said, you know, she has this, this website called Goop, this newsletter. It wasn't a website. It was not a website. It was a weekly newsletter. And I said, okay, I want to meet Gwyneth Paltrow. And so, and it happened. And I told Gwyneth what I wanted to do and my vision to make the art world democratic and to demystify the art world and make it for everybody and to make it accessible and to allow people to buy things at any price point. It doesn't have to be for rich people. The emerging artists also become important at some point. And uh, she said, oh, that's so awesome. You know what? I would love to hear more, whatever, this and that. And I sent her physically to her house in New York City because at that time she still had a house in New York City, an apartment. I sent her a folder. It was a mess, honestly. A folder with an article that I had through a women's organization. That was another thing. I had a women's organization in New York City that allowed you to write for Forbes dot com once a month or something so I wrote an article on forbes.com about how to collect art and so I printed that I printed like it was very shitty man I mean you wouldn't believe it how shitty it was so I sent it to her house and I gave it to the doorman actually I went personally and I handed it to the doorman months went by and one day I saw that I had a missed call in my phone and when I checked the message it was her and I could not believe it It was like, hey, Maria, it's Gwyneth Paltrow. I just came back to New York after months of not being here. Thank you so much for your envelope with everything you sent. You know what? I would love if you write a whole story for Goop. And I was like, oh, my God. And again, 2011, it was a year and a half that my business had been open. And... Goop was just, uh, every Thursday, it was a green background newsletter. There was no website. It was just a newsletter. So I wrote it. I wrote a very long, non-pretentious story about how to collect art. And when she sent that out, my life changed because... Because it was a very different world. First of all, everybody, you know, now it's a massive company with products and things and the thing comes out three times a week and, and it's a podcast and a TV show. And this was a once a week newsletter that everybody was waiting for. Yeah. When that thing hit the inboxes of people, you have no idea the amount of emails and things and flurry of, and in- like my world changed that day, including my first book came out of that because... The publisher had read it and she's like, oh, somebody who knows how to write about art in a way that is accessible and take pictures too. Because I had take pictures with my phone that was the shittiest phone in the world <laughs> at the time. And I had used those pictures. I can't even, I, you know, I cannot even believe this. I mean, when you look back, you cringe, but it was the time. So I accepted the invitation from the publishing house to write a book and to do it with them because it was an opportunity I couldn't dismiss. Right at the same time, this, you're not going to believe this either. But listen, you guys, magic happens and I don't know how. This literally the same time that I got this phone call from Gwyneth, another friend of mine from Los Angeles called me and said, I have been watching what you're doing. It's absolutely cool. I would love for you to meet my friend. I'm going to introduce you to his team. He's looking for someone to actually teach him how to collect art. And when I got the email, I see that the email says badboy.com. And they are like, well, could you actually meet with Sean Diddy Combs next week? Oh, my God. (laughs) He's coming to New York. He's coming to New York and he's going to be so happy to meet with you. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? You know what I mean? Like, but at the same time, that was the day of the, you know, the astral transits or whatever. That was the day of the best. That, that Those two weeks were the best astral transits of my life. But basically, I was so determined in my heart. And I had such a desire to succeed and to serve. And I never, it never crossed my mind. I was not going to make it happen. I, I want you to understand this. Like, It was just like, I knew as a lawyer, I was going to fail at some point because I hated it and, you know, I didn't have a passion for it and it was showing, you know, but, but in this new thing, I knew I was going to succeed somewhat, you know, and somehow. So Bob, Daddy and Gwyneth came at the same time, literally from two different avenues in a very unbelievable move that I don't know how to explain I want to bottle that up and sell it. But I'm being as candid and as honest as I can be. This is exactly what I did. What I did was like, I had a blank canvas. I had no grudges. I had no disappointments in the art world. And I felt that the world was mine for me to write my own narrative and my own story. And those two things gave me a lot of momentum. The book that came through Gwyneth's newsletter and also working with Buff for many, 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 many years, actually. That was the beginning of a very, very long relationship with him. It was public because him and I went to Art Basel many times together. Everybody saw us and everybody took pictures of us. And and so I think that things happen for a reason. And when you get so many confirmations from the universe, it's that you're ready to take a bigger mission and and to help others and to... And also give you some confidence that what you're doing is the right thing.
0: Uh, yeah, I think anytime when you start something a, a passion project, first of all, obviously that came because you were really passionate and you were re- You were doing something that you were meant to do. Um, I mean, that's pretty obvious. But you're also doing it as a passion because you saw a need that you felt wasn't being met because you weren't able to find it yourself, and so that's so you created that. You know, your website with your with your blog and everything. To be able to to share those things, right? Because I think, first of all, if you're not doing something that you're passionate about or that you love, I think it becomes a lot more difficult to to be able to create something. When you were at the law firm, you were create yes, you were creating money for yourself, but ultimately, you were creating money for the firm that you worked for, and you weren't you weren't able to design your own life. You were at the mercy of what they wanted you to do for them. So stepping out as an entrepreneur is not easy. I mean, look, I do have a daytime job beyond the podcast, but the podcast is what keeps me going. I'm not even going to lie. Like this is the one thing that I don't mind being up till two in the morning. If something needs to get done, I'll be up at two in the morning to do it because I love it so much. But then you have to have, like you said, the creativity. And sometimes we get blocked in our creativity. We think we know, but then we're like, we have the idea of what we want to do, but we're not sure how to get there. How? What is it that you do in your masterclass to help people unlock their creative potential?
1: You know, Jessica, the masterclass was born the year uh, my business turned 10 years, right? And it was my way to give back, to teach what I had learned, and to motivate and to incentivize others to follow their hearts, whether it is... If they are part of a big company and they just want to stand out or if they just want to leave a business where they are and and open their own business or if they want to pivot a practice or something like that. So what I did was basically I broke down each one of the habits and techniques and skills that I used to get to where I am today. And I saw also which one of those skills are replicated by the great entrepreneurs and the great artists in history, right? And so that history doesn't lie to us and we have to actually look at history not like people say don't look you look at history so that you don't repeat the mistakes no 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 I actually look at history with a very different intent which is how do I s- extract the best of history so that we know back then it worked it's gonna work today as well but adapt it to our times and what I did is to create a in design a curriculum that was easy to understand, easy to digest, broken down in modules, highly organized, it's very visual because it's with videos that have a lot of imagery and B-roll and and so that actually it's not static, it's a very dynamic program and give people exercises at the end of each one of the modules. So, I mean, the modules are broken down by submodules that are really small lessons, digestible, you know, between five and 10 minutes at most. And at the end, there is an exercise for everybody to do. And so the magic actually happens when people integrate both things because humans learn by integrating what they have learned on a theoretical level, let's say, that is watching the video, even though it's very practical and I don't give theory, but you know, let's say that way and actually implementing that in their lives. And that's why I give them the exercises. So people who come and do the course, the people who see the most success are the ones who actually do the exercises and, and embody those practices, even if it's in a playful way, to see what's going to happen after all. And most of those people actually see enormous benefits and they have opened up new businesses. They have moved countries and opened businesses in different countries. They have quit their jobs in, let's say, the Midwest. I have an example of someone who was working in in Detroit, Michigan, and wasn't very happy and moved to New York City, double the salary. I have had examples of people who, actually wanted to shine in their jobs and they didn't know how to and they they actually liked the job they were in but they knew that they had to stand out. So creativity is a very powerful tool because it allows you to Come up in your very unique and authentic ways and outshine your competitors and, uh, you know, come up with relevancy. Relevancy is a very important thing because it's, it means that it's you, but it's you for today. It's not you for 1981. It's not you for 1991. It's you for today to serve the needs of what's today. And to do that, you have to be very attuned to the normal circumstances and the things that are happening. A lot of people are not paying attention. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. We are living in the world of uh, weapons of mass destruction, you know, like the weapons of mass destruction are social media and the phone and this. And, And those are amazing things that we have at our disposal to make our lives easier, but they shouldn't consume us to the extent that our brains get flooded with so much information that we're unable to think for ourselves. So this course gets into all those things and actually helps people reclaim their original creative minds because we are, as human beings, creative from the moment we're born, filled with unlimited ideas, filled with a mind gold of, you know, success and business and this and that. But formal education and society strangles that. So we are here to, in this course, um, my mission is to open that up.
0: I love that. First of all, when you're saying it's like five, 10 minute things, you make it digestible, right? They're are five, 10 minute lessons that you build on because so often a lot of courses are like, they can be very overwhelming. And I think if people, whether you're starting a job or like you said, and I love that it's for anything. If you love your job and you're not an entrepreneur, because not everybody's an entrepreneur, And I feel like we're in this society where we're like, you got to hustle, you got to do this, you got to no. like, if you don't want, you shouldn't feel forced to start a company or be an entrepreneur. If That's not what you want. And that's okay. Like, we have to say, like, it's okay. I feel like it used to be, we used to make it okay. Oh, it's okay. If you want to be an entrepreneur, that's okay. But now it's almost like, oh, you want to not work for yourself? It's okay. No, we need to make, like, everybody has their own life choices to make and not everybody has the desire, the will, the whatever to be an entrepreneur. And like, we need all of those people. We can't all be entrepreneurs all the time. So I like that it's designed for people regardless of what space they're taking up in and to be more creative in their space. I think that's, honestly, I think that's a really brilliant concept because you see so many masterminds that focus on the entrepreneur and not necessarily on the creativity that can that you can implement in all parts of your life, because truly creativity really seeps into every aspect of our life.
1: You've said it. I had a student who said that this was the mother of all the courses she had taken, because if you can't think for yourself and you cannot come up with ideas that are valuable to society, it doesn't really matter how many classes on entrepreneurship and how many accounting and, you know, systems and this and that. So my course, it's a, it's kind of like, it goes to the root cause of the issue, right? Like, because you may have a lot of hard skills, you may know how to code, you may be very good at math, you may be an extraordinary, let's say, writer or whatever. But if you don't know how to use your talents or your skill sets, it's going to be really hard for you to stand out, right? So the, this is a course that actually teaches you how to think. And how to use what you got to be better. You know, I don't expect people to be a different person or to just like turn themselves into some sort of expert of something that they are not. I just I wanted to give people and and honestly, if people knew that things can be so easy for for them to come up with better ideas, if they understood, and that's the thing, right? You have, you need somebody to tell you how the pieces of the puzzle fit into each other to actually be able to come up out of your, you know, blur state of mind. If people knew how easy these things can be, the hard thing is for people to actually implement them in their daily lives and to work through the exercises. I think that's that's the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. Is is we live in a very busy world and and people commit to something, but they don't see it come through because life happens.
0: Yeah. I absolutely love that. I think that's just so brilliant. I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to also give you opportunity to add anything that I may have not asked or be able to share with people before I get into the last couple of questions.
1: You know, I think we've covered so much, Jessica. I think that if people are curious and uh, they are not ready to like buy a course or anything, you just call me, hang out with me, my website, mariabrita.com. sign up for the newsletter that is free. Actually, I love this project because, you know, so many people right now are charging for newsletters and things like that. And I think that's not cool. I send a newsletter every Tuesday. I put an enormous amount of effort into giving people tools, Connections with stories—it's a lot of storytelling, mostly about history. So, because I love, I love to look back because I say, well, if it worked out for this guy, will it work right now in our insane times of COVID and societal shifts and political shifts and TikTok and shit and whatnot, right? So, and it actually does because here's the thing. Whatever happened 300 years ago and somebody was amazing and could survive, you know, the Black Death 400 years ago, the Black Death in Italy, that's, you know, that was the plague that killed half of Italy. And they actually came out of the other side with like the Renaissance and beautiful things and an immense amount of contributions in the world of architecture and music and painting and this and that. What is it that they were doing that was so important? You know, so they they did not have TikTok and they, you know not they didn't have iPhones, but they had skills and those skills and I'm not talking about sculpting, I'm talking about human skills, right? I mean, the skills of the skills of curiosity, the skills of being authentic. There is a saying that I love. I want to repeat it here. There is a saying that the people from the Renaissance, they had a very specific commitment and mission. And it was, how do we improve the present while living something of substance for the future? I want to repeat it. How do we improve the present while living something of substance for the future? And this actually keeps me wondering all the time, how do I do that too? We don't live isolated. We're not islands. We have a community of people around us. We have families. We have others that we serve and touch, whether that is your social media, your podcast, your blog. Think about these things of how do you actually improve the present? Just start with that. How do you improve the present? Because the art of actually thinking through things and and working hard and actually I feel all the time I want to serve my readers with excellence. Because that's my responsibility. I think about this all the time. So why don't we all sort of like pull from that renaissance thought of improving the present and see what we get to with that, right? Because I'm sure that you have a mission with the podcast and it's actually shining through. We can see energy can be filled, right? We can see how hard you're working to elevate Latino communities and to shine a light on the stories of so many of us so that we can actually inspire others and open a door to better lives for people who are hardworking and decent and amazing. I think that these things have to be said and you are a conduit for improving the future and leaving something of substance for the future.
0: Oh, girl. Okay. That's, I'm going to end it with that because that is so good. That is like, how can you improve on that? Seriously. Um, I want to make sure people know how they can connect with you. You have your website, MariaBrito, B-R-I-T-O dot com. On Instagram, MariaBrito underscore NY. Yeah. Twitter, MariaBrito underscore NY. Yeah. And Facebook, MariaBrito NY. I'm going to put all of the links in the show notes so you can connect to Maria in every imaginable possible way. Uh, Maria, the last question we always ask, we start with the wine and we end with the wine. What is your? Do you have favorite bubbles? Because I know your favorite wine is sparkling. Because you like your bubbles. What is your favorite type? Do you have a favorite type of bubbles that you like?
1: Yes, anything that is brut nature, meaning zero extra dosage. Right. I mean, for the for our audience, you can explain this, but let me see if I can. When you make champagne, it goes through a barrel and then, you know, you have to put it on a bottle where it actually it gets ferment, you know, the, it, it goes through the process of fermentation. Right. And then you uncork it, take the cork out and then normal champagne, let's say famous, let's say, for example, the champagne maker adds a little, it's almost like a dose because it's called dosage, right? It's a, it's like a, two teaspoons or whatever of a liquor that has a lot of sugar that actually aids in the fermentation. Then they cork it again and that, you know, it it fizzes in and like it creates all these bubbles and whatnot. So the champagne that I like does not have that last dosage, which is that extra uh, liquor with sugar. The champagne that I like is um, lemony. It's acidic is very very dry, and the brand or let's say house champagne house that I like the most is called Drapier, D R A P P I E R, Drapier. and they sell all over the U.S. and you can buy them online and whatnot. And it's a it's a small house and it's um it's acidic. It's nothing. I don't like things that are are sweet at all and uh those those are my bubbles and i want i'm happy to learn more about what california is doing it's been a long time that i have not been to napa i should go again soon i need to go again soon <laughs> well you're closer than i am but the thing is napa has an enormous potential for the of wines because of the weather yeah. and the terra they get the cold climate that is so important for the of grapes the grapes that the that of champagne uses so we have a lot of potential in the United States to do amazing things. But the problem with Napa, and I'm sure you know, is that it's so freaking expensive to have a piece of land in Napa. And it's more expensive than in France. And so it becomes a an insanely difficult business. My husband, who's as I told you, it got me into all this, has always had a dream to have a winery. But it's cheaper to have a winery in France than to have an a una- winery in Napa. So there
0: are why actually, is that? <laughs> there are, there are a lot of up and coming areas in California that are outside of Napa because, like you said, there's there's so much. Um, San Diego actually has a tremendous amount of wineries. I need to hit all of those up, but also Lodi. That's actually more inland, and they're an up and coming area. You have some, you definitely, obviously you have Santa Barbara, Paso Robles, you know, Sonoma, Sonoma, Napa. There's even some like that you, yeah, you get towards Sacramento. So there's a ton, there's definitely a ton. And there's a lot of new places that are coming up, Temecula, I forget to say Temecula, but Maria, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with our audience and I can't wait. I need to talk to you more. I need like, I need to, because we could have been here for another hour easily, but Mm -hmm. I want to respect your time. And I just want to say, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your time with us.
1: Jessica, it's been a pleasure. I feel enormous kinship with you. Your energy is beautiful. And I know you get me because I get you. And also this is the thing, like we understand each other because we know What the background entails, what it is to grow up with a particular type of family, you know, and the things that, the things that the common denominator in Latinos, which are plenty. I mean, I think we're very different from one place to the other. You know, Argentinians are one thing, Mexicans are another, Venezuelans are another. But I think that there is a very common thread of values, family, warmth, generosity, and I, I just hope we can extend this more and, and form stronger bonds and have stronger communities because we're a very, very important group in this country Absolutely. and in the world, actually. We just need a little bit more of organization. That's
0: that's Girl, that's what I'm saying. Thank you so much, Maria. And until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese on our website, thewineandcheesemipodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at thewineandcheesemint on Instagram at the Wine and podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheeseman, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more.